Hello, everybody, and welcome to my podcast. This is your host, Sam Rodardi, and today I talk to Peter Stark, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Astoria, John Jacob Astor, and Thomas Jefferson's Lost Pacific Empire, a story of wealth, ambition, and survival. Um, we just did a short interview, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you. Well, thanks for talking to me. And um, so my first question is, like, I read this book, I told you when I was 16. And so I wanted to know, like, how do writers and publishers, how do they perceive, like, young readers when it comes to, like, historical topics? Well, that's a really good and complex question. And I don't think anybody's asked me that before. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I can speak for myself as an author and and how I approach historical topics. And... For me, I, I feel that, I, you know, in some ways I've had a certain access to a young audience uh, or younger, not not really young, because I, I started out as a as a or an uh, adventure. All these, you know, crazy outdoor adventures and write accounts about them. And so um, that there was a sort of a, you know, real hands on outdoorsy excitement that I tried to bring to my writing from the very beginning. And then, you know, eventually I, I, I moved from writing about myself doing the crazy adventures, realizing I, I could get killed doing this <laughs> after a while. And so I started writing about historical adventures and, and I, I found that really interesting um, when, when I started to kind of dig into history, uh, American history and exploration history. And so that's that's how I came, uh, got interested in the Astoria story. Mm -hmm. um, but sort of that story, I've tried to bring that same sense of, of excitement and, and real visceral, uh, vivid uh, experience um, and tried to capture that in in my writing and I, I think that's um, part of what uh, engages a, a younger readers and so I've never really thought okay I'm, I'm reaching out specifically to younger readers but I've um, in all my writing from the time I started as, as an adventure writer I realized that there are, are young readers um, especially young young men young males who 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 really come along on these journeys with me as readers and so that's been really cool and it, it, I mean it sounds like it it, it grabbed you too it, yeah. it, you said 16 yeah you can definitely feel it in your writing for sure like I think most especially when they're on the boat like on the Tonquin and they're taking that journey it's like geez like you can almost feel that you're there with like the whole squabbling and the fighting and all that stuff I just read because I'm rereading it again. I just read the part where Captain Thorne left the Scottish partners behind, and I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> like you feel that you're there. It's, <laughs> it's really cool. So, so yeah, I think I think you do a really good job of that in your writing. Like you can feel that you're on the journey with the people, at least in this book. And so yeah, and so like kind of um, piggybacking on that. So how long have did you study the the connection between Astor and Thomas Jefferson to get your your information for the Astoria book. Well, I I tried to find everything I could on that 
particular relationship. And there's not that much. I mean, there's there's several letters and there are a few um, secondhand accounts by uh, some of the of of Jefferson's cabinet members who were who were involved. I think Gallatin, as I'm thinking off the top of my head, um, who were involved in some of these discussions. And so, you know, I would have studied a lot more on that relationship if I could have found any more. And so, I, as far as I know, I think I found everything that there that existed about that particular relationship or everything that's known, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the letters of course are, uh, are really interesting to read. And there they are, these handwritten letters from, from Astor to Jefferson and Jefferson to Astor. And they're very revealing. And so the, the, to have something like that, you know, those, those, those primary sources and those original documents where you can really feel the sort of the relationship and the, and the kind of the life of the conversation, those are invaluable. And, and that's what I, I found in, in, in that book, particularly, I mean, starting with that book, I've written several since, um, you know, historical adventure, mm-hmm. uh, books, but that's the first thing I go for, you know, is to find those hands-on, uh, documents, those hands-on experience, those first-person accounts. Yeah, and I think, like, reading them, it's it's crazy how, like, real they are. Like, you can't make that up. Like, when Thomas Jefferson was talking to Astor about, like, creating an empire on the West Coast and then all that stuff, I was like, you, like that's crazy that they're talking about that. It's it's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. that And, and, and you know, the sort of the scope or the vision both of them had was just, a, yeah. you know, this wildly sweeping yeah. epic scope yeah vision biggest visionaries of their time just like who else had that vision it was crazy so yeah i thought that was that was awesome that connection that those two had so astor as like a businessman and as a fur trader and an immigrant what do you think was the biggest challenge that he faced as like in his roles like in all those roles in his lifetime well, yeah, I, I mean, he had many roles, as you as you just mentioned, and you know, starting as an immigrant, um, that I, you know, I think he was sort of a a groundbreaker all the way, and that there was you know something about him as a personality that that lent itself to to in a way exploring new terrain and not be intimidated by taking on something really big and and almost unimaginably big so just from the moment you know when we first hear about him when he's in in the villages of waldorf um where he grew up and his dad was a a butcher and he had these older brothers and he didn't have a very good relationship with his stepmother and um that you know at that early age he determined that he was going to get out and do something and it seems almost as if from that moment, those earliest uh, uh, years that it, w- where we see the evidence, that he was um, thinking of really big things. And he managed to to uh, to carry that through, you know, just simply leaving this this very insular community of Waldorf and then, you know, going down. The, I think he was on, a, on a, uh, a timber raft going down a river and then he got to England and then, 
you know, he learned English and then he always wanted to go to, to America and, but he needed to, you know, lay the groundwork. And then he waited for the prime moment after the, the revolution had been settled. So he was really on top of things from the time he was a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Really like just someone that was, it seems like he was just somebody that was always thinking of like, like two moves ahead, like in chess, like just the person that's like, just always ahead of you. And I thought that was, that was cool about, about his story. Like, like I said before, just the vision is super impressive to me. Like it's almost unimaginable. Well, and, and one, one other thing I'll, I'll throw in here is that, you know, he did have these older brothers and, and that I think his older brothers were in some ways examples to him. And, and even though I'm not sure they were all that, you know, really nice you know they're probably nice enough but they 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 gave him uh i think they gave him both an example and also you know instruction on how he might go about uh becoming a businessman because he had one brother in new york who was already uh, i think was there when he arrived i believe and then he had one in england who was in the musical uh instrument business so he he had these older brothers who were in the commercial world and um, and the sort of un, almost the entrepreneurial world. So he had some really good mentoring, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I had a lot of figures to look up to. So like, with all this this studying that you did about him, what was your favorite aspect of studying like of studying his life? What was the the part you found most interesting? Oh wow! I mean, it's it's. Uh, I have to think about that for a moment because you know I I did the research some years ago. Um, I, I found him a fascinating character, and um, that I think I mean almost the whole arc of his life um, up to the time he launched this Astoria expedition. And, and and to the end of that expedition. And of course, that's the part I really researched of his life. Yeah. But he was, um, uh, that that sense of, of, of setting out into the unknown, both when he was really young, you know, a teenager, and then when he became a young businessman, and then in launching this venture, because it, it, it was setting out in the unknown from a business point of view. And of course he sent these guys who actually went out into the unknown in, you know, in a real point of view. But I I think one of the things that really struck me, uh, that I, that, uh, I, I was intrigued by was that the incredible passion he had to make the Astoria venture succeed that it was it was much more in the end than just a business venture for him. I think it was a it was something he put a lot of emotional investment into, and not to mention huge financial investment. Yeah. And he really wanted to see it succeed. So he was, as you know, I mean, you know, giving these blank checks to both to Mister Hunt going across the continent, and then you know writing these huge checks to his sea captains to go over to to uh to england to go you know buy a ship or two you know just yeah. go to it we, we need that and so it was like you know he'd do anything to make that succeed but he he couldn't yeah yeah and i think you made that that very clear in your book the like how he was just he looked through every possible option 
how like every like thing he went over it but in the end the thing that he couldn't control was like the minds of his of the people that were working for him and the circumstances that they faced which for a man like him must have been so frustrating a man that's that planned for every possible thing and then and then just circumstances beyond his control are what ended up being like the the downfall of of that that enterprise which yeah must well, and, and it, it, it is you know i think i wrote in the book he had backup plans for his backup plans yeah. for his backup plans <laughs> and you know he tried to think of everything and then you know who who would have guessed that a war would be declared by the us against against great britain and that that his guys would run into such incredible difficulty in crossing the mountains and that yeah. captain thorne i mean you might have guessed that he was a, a little <laughs> bit uh, over the edge to yeah. begin with, <laughs> but but Astor warned him very explicitly in in these letters. You don't you have to be have a good relationship with the native people, mm-hmm. and he was very emphatic about it to to Thorne, and you know Thorne utterly ignored that advice, and yeah. and 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 Astor had said, you know, you've got to keep people aboard your ship happy. No, not Thorne, at all. no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not at all. <laughs> Yeah, but but I will say in Thorne's behalf, I think those Scottish fur traders were not all that kind to Thorne. No, <laughs> you know, no, you that there was a lot of tension in between the two. Yeah, they they did seem a little stuck up. Yeah, that was a, a an interesting part because like reading the book, you just really want to hate Captain Thorne. You're like, wow, this guy is a jerk. But it's like you have to kind of see it. He was a naval captain, and he's dealing with like the voyagers who were just like kind of party good time hippie guys and then the fur traders <laughs> who were partners so they they wanted everything their way it just must have been it was just a big kind of conglomeration of of different like ideologies different like ideas for how things should be done so like competing interests in a way yeah. and they're all uh, you know the the in some ways the interests are supposed to be working together but in other ways they're working against each other and all these different interests are jammed on this little ship going <laughs> six months or halfway around the world yeah like kind of a recipe it, for something to go really bad <laughs> yeah big time like reading it it's a wonder that they made it all the way there <laughs> like it's yeah. it's cool but so so he with Astor's funding of these two expeditions and all that he did how do you think the history of westward expansion would would look? How different do you think it would look without Astor's influence in it? I, I've wondered about that a lot, and I, I'm not the only one. Um, when you look at the scope of his vision, as we were just saying, and Jefferson's vision, that to really expand it all the way to the west coast, you know, the the reach of America, or or some country of liberty, you know, along the lines of of the U S out on the West coast. So that, that he was really, um, the person who could envision that. And that in a way he, um, he was a guy who got there first in some way. And even though, uh, Jefferson had already sent Lewis and Clark, they, you know, they weren't, establishing any big trading post out there i I talked to it was funny i talked to uh a museum curator in astoria in oregon yeah and and he was saying well yeah i mean and you know of course lewis and clark had been right there at the mouth of the columbia too and but he was saying yeah you know lewis and clark really they were just tourists 
<laughs> Astor's guys were here to stay. Yeah. And that entailed a whole different uh, world and commitment and, and, and a, a whole other uh, set of skills having to do with human relationships and dealing with other people. And, you know, Lewis and Clark were amazingly successful in what they did, but this was a, in a way a lot more complex. And so that the fact that Astor had got there and actually had established or his guys had established a post that was um, a big symbolic uh, uh, move that it, or it, beca- it became symbolic it, over the next few decades of American history when the uh, West Coast became more and more uh, uh, a possibility for settlement and the British were claiming it and the Americans were claiming it. And of course the Spanish were down in California. And so in the 1820s, um, there is the big uh, realization that the U S is going to really push West. You know, this whole kind of Westward movement is really taking off. And, and that, that, idea of manifest destiny you know that the u.s is destined to go all the way to the pacific and it was at that time that that politicians and you know other people the in the in the you know public consciousness started saying well yeah of course we established the first american colony on the west coast before the british did um with with astor's astor's colony and the the british took it from us so we were there first so we, you know, we deserve to have it. And mm-hmm. so I think that really made a big difference in, in, uh, in Americans thinking in, in the early 1800s in the 1820s, 1830s, when, when, uh, uh, people started looking ever further West and, um, and they pointed to Astor and said to Astor settlement and said, we started there. We're going to finish there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that it looked pretty different, especially the Northwest. If Astor hadn't hadn't had that vision and done what he did, because like even with the settlement there, I was reading about like the 49th parallel and the treaties that they did there. I think Britain or Russia or somebody would have had a different a different idea of what the Northwest and Canada would have looked like if not for Astor. So, yeah, well, yeah, no, I, I think that's right, and, and and there were several world powers that were all involved, you know, and conceivably could have have, you know, taken a big chunk of the West Coast. And as you were saying, Russia was one. The, the you know the British already did. I mean, they they had a, a presence at, in British Columbia, of course, but it's still by European standards, you know, it's essentially wilderness with a few fur posts, and of course, <laughs> but of course, a huge Native American population. Yeah. Um, and then you know you have the Spanish down and coming up from the south in in California, and they were up as far as uh, as San Francisco at that point, or a little farther north. And then I you know you, I suppose the French could have got in there, or you know who knows? But it it could have been a real struggle among various uh, um, national powers to establish who owned the the West Coast. And as it was. It, it, you know, as you know, it it became kind of, the, especially the Northwest, the sort of vying between uh, Britain and the U.S. And it was kind of in that state of limbo for some decades 
where they had a the you know the joint occupation agreement where yeah. both both you know nationals from both both nations could uh, could come there and live there. Yeah, yeah, that's super super interesting. It's cool to think the difference that he made and how different it could be. So I think just as kind of a a wrap up question, we're getting close to to the end of our time, but. Um, what is one thing that that those of us reading through a modern lens have a difficult time understanding about John Jacob Astor, be it his personality or his business ideals? What is something that we as as modern people have a difficulty understanding about him? Yeah, a couple of things that I, I, I think one is is how very determined he was and what kind of determination it took in those days with especially given the lack of communications across these long distances. So, you know, it was two years before he even knew that he had established a, a colony on the West coast. So it was very difficult to, to know what was going on. And so in some ways, everything he did was an act of faith that it was going to work, that it was going to happen. So extreme determination and the other is, uh, you know, I think that we don't really have a concept of what, how large a vision that he had and how far reaching a vision he had. Because, of course, we know about the West Coast and we know, you know, under cities up and down it, you know, Seattle and, you know, San Francisco and Portland and on and on. Um, we know what it is in his day. No one really knew what it was. No, no Europeans. I mean, as I say, the native it was very, very uh, well developed from a Native American point of view, the, the Northwest. But, but it was also for a, from a European or American point of view, it was literally the most remote coast in the world, or most remote habitable coast in the world. It was so far, whatever twenty five thousand miles around Cape Horn. Uh, I think about the same distance going the other way around um, the globe. And, uh, or, you know, a year's overland journey. So, um, that, that he literally had to both literally and figuratively Astor had to have the vision to see over the horizon, way over the horizon in a way that I don't think we can really comprehend in our life with our knowledge of, of geography and with our connectedness to each other. It's just just beyond our conception. And, you know, I've compared him in the, in the book to, uh, you know, I, I've said he's the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs of his era. I mean, you know, I'm talking about visionaries, yeah. but in some ways it, his vision went beyond that. And um, not to take anything away from Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, but um, that uh, it was such a leap to do what he did. Yeah. And he did it all at once. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that's crazy. Just the way that, that he had the vision to do that. Cause I think in the book you compared it to like to the average American, the West coast would have been like, it had been as, as far away a dream as traveling to the moon or traveling to the stars. So imagine yeah, exactly. the guy being like, Oh, I'm going to the moon. Like I got the money, got the people I'm doing it. Like it's pretty, pretty crazy. So just a, an extremely interesting historical figure, which not many 
Americans know about. Like, I'd, if you ask just the average person, I'd, they might know the name of his hotel or something in of the Wild. Yeah, right. In, in, in Vegas or in, in New York. But other than that, so yeah, it's super cool. And then just because we're out of time, one more question, just kind of a, a silly one. So if they're going to make a, a movie about Aster, who would you choose to play? John Jacob Astor. Oh, <laughs> good question. I wish you know. I, I'm so I'm so lame on popular culture that I, I that I that uh, I, I couldn't you know come up with 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 a name or a face. Um, but it's also you know that I think you'd need a couple of different actors almost because you'd want somebody to play him as a young man. Yeah. And I mean, as a you know, as a 16 year old. Yeah. And then you'd also have someone play him as a as a. 40 year old or 40 something year old. So, um, I don't know who, let me ask you, who would you think? Oh man. Um, I don't know. I think in his older years, if he gave maybe like an, I don't know, like an Alec Baldwin and then shut him talking to German. Accent. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, like that. Well, and then somebody is, was speculating about who captain Thorne would be, you know, Oh but, man. Um, but, I don't know. There are no, probably a lot of possibilities. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well, let, let, let me ask you a question. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, I'm going to have to bail out here in a second. But yeah. just, um, uh, you know, that, that you were saying that you're, that you're descended related to Thomas McKay. Yeah. So that's what doing our like genealogy. That's what we found um, that <clears throat> we think that he had a kid with the Yakima Indian woman. And that's where my descendancy comes through because we're Yakima we're from the Yakima Nation, so that's where. Oh, are you real cool? Yeah, so tracing it back, that's where that's where we come come in. There's a Thomas McKinsey, that's wild. and it's the same time period as him, so we we think it's him. Like obviously not. A, There's a, a a Thomas McKay in your in your family in records our, or yeah, genealogy, genealogy, and and it's it's about that same time, and it's in it's in the Northwest. I mean, is it in the in the Yakima area the uh, where that name appears? Yeah, so around like southern Washington, so south central Washington, central Washington around there. That is amazing. I know. It's super cool. So, yeah. He's one of my favorite characters that Thomas, well, I mean, he we we don't know much about him, but but that that he could be such a uh uh he could have had a, a big role that we don't really know about. Yeah. In you know, in future years, because his um, let's, let's see if I remember this right. His mom, who's in Montreal, ended up marrying um, you know who was the, the 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 British sort of founding father of the Oregon Territory. You, you know who I'm talking about? Uh, I don't I don't know the name. Sorry. Uh, well, I'll, uh, when I think I'll I'll send you, I'll email it to you. But but I think his mom married a, a high. British official in the Northwest when it was still, you know, frontier fur trading territory. And so he was, he was connected with the, uh, the, you know, that whole Oregon country at the, at its founding and its settlement. That's really cool. Thomas McKay was. So that's a, yeah, I'd love to know more. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can't take out something. Thank you. But yeah, I think that's it. I found out a lot of stuff today. It's super cool to hear it from, from an expert, somebody that's that studied it, wrote a book on it. So thank you for taking out the time of your day to talk to me. And 
That's it. Yeah, well, it's been it's been delightful to talk to you, and I hope we'll, we can continue the conversation somehow. And um, you know, and I'm thinking that you're probably more of an expert on John Jacob Astor than I am at this point. So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> all right. Thank you. See you. Okay. Yeah. Good luck with your project. See you. Thank you.